the May Journal Club podcast. Um, today we are again joined by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Director for the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre, as well as Emergency Physician Dr. David McCreary. We will review four papers today, covering a wide range of interesting topics, including vasopressor use in post-resuscitation shock in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, supervisor and trainee power and trust dynamics in WBAs, front of neck access techniques, as well as how can we miss out on talking about COVID-19, a paper on the effect of Sotrovimab. So let's get started. Paper one. The first paper is titled Epinephrine versus Norepinephrine in Cardiac Arrest Patients with Post-Resuscitation Shock. It was published in the Intensive Care Medicine Journal just two months ago in March. I mean, and asked a very important question, um, which was, does epinephrine cause more harm than norepinephrine in treating cardiac arrest patients with post-resuscitation shock? Just a little bit about why this topic is important. We all know that there's poor survival out of hospital cardiac arrest being about 10%, and only one-third of these patients are admitted to hospital alive, of which two-thirds of the patient die in ICU admission because of neurological injury or hemodynamic failure. So a lot of these patients will be on some sort of vasopressor infusion for an extended period of time. However, there are a few head-to-head studies comparing vasopressor use in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And the reason why we're interested in this is because there's a theoretical risk of adrenaline causing harm in these patients because of increasing anotropy and heart rate and then causing increasing myocardial oxygen demand. And so theoretically, they can cause some harm in patients who are post-arrest. So no study has compared epinephrine and norepinephrine using these group of patients with post-resuscitation shock, and this is what this paper has set out to look at. So the design is a registry-based multicenter observational study. The data of patients included in this study was actually pulled from a sudden death registry in Paris, and data from patients admitted to five university hospitals alive and managed for post-resuscitation shock after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest over the period of 2011 to 2018 were included. Post-resuscitation shock was defined as a need for vasopressors for more than six hours despite adequate fluid loading, and they aimed a target mean of 65. They excluded patients who had obvious extracardiac cause for cardiac arrest, for example, patients with trauma or drug overdose, refractory shock, a refractory cardiac arrest without sustainable ROSC, patients with refractory shock requiring ECMO, um, as well as absence of patients who don't need um, the use of a vasopressor infusion after the arrest. They initially excluded patients who had continuous IV treatment with both epinephrine and norepinephrine, but later on in additional analysis, they included this group of patients as well. The intervention group received epinephrine infusion during the ICU stay, and the comparison group received norepinephrine infusion during the ICU stay. And the primary outcome was all-course hospital mortality during the hospital stay. They also looked at a few secondary outcomes, including cardiovascular hospital mortality, as well as unfavorable neurological outcome. So what were the findings? 766 patients from five hospitals were included in the study, of which 37% received epinephrine and 63% received norepinephrine. Before we go into the study findings, I want to bring your attention to Table 1 in the paper that reported the basic baseline features in the two groups. So there are quite a lot of differences between the two study groups. In the epinephrine group, less patients had a shockable rhythm at the start. They had a lower median pH on emission. They had higher arterial lactate at emission, they had higher iodotropy requirements, 
more of them had myocardial dysfunction, less of them underwent a coronary angiogram, less of them had targeted temperature management. And although this last point is not statistically significant, but more patients in the epinephrine group had occurrence of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest at home. So then the study went on to say that they found that all-cause mortality was significantly high in the epinephrine group, being 83% versus 61% in a non-epinephrine group. There were more deaths and because of refractory shock in the epinephrine group, being 35% versus 9% in a norepinephrine group. There was more recurrent cardiac arrest in the epinephrine group, 9% versus 3%. Cardiovascular hospital mortality was higher in the epinephrine group, 44% versus 18%. And the frequency of favorable neurological outcome was 15% versus 37% in the NORAD group. So the authors concluded that amongst patients with post-resuscitation shock after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, Use of epinephrine was associated with higher all-cause and cardiovascular-specific mortality compared with norepinephrine infusion. So, Peter, in our journal club, there was quite a lot of discussion about the statistical analysis of the paper as well as the study design of the paper and the many issues um, that they saw. What are your thoughts about this study? I mean, this is a very interesting study, difficult area to investigate prospectively, and so these retrospective studies uh, what we have to rely on, you know, in terms of big numbers uh, in the in the short term. What this study does is it shows an association between using adrenaline and death, and that's interesting. It also shows is that the patients who got adrenaline were very different patients to the ones who got noradrenaline. And they've done some fancy statistical juggling to try and overcome those differences between the two groups. And, you know, the standard approach is a sort of multiple logistic regression model. And then they've done some propensity scoring, trying to make patients treated in each group look exactly the same. And the problem with that is when you start off with apples and oranges, it's very hard to make them all apples. You can sort of paint them orange, but they're not really orange. The the fundamental differences in table one are quite stark. The difference in the shockable rhythm and the difference from CPR to ROSC uh, and so forth, they are differences that are very hard to adjust for. And, and in fact, uh, it's a nonsense uh, to try and adjust for them. Dev, I think in the journal club, uh, Dev Mitra also made mention of methodological issues around the way they've done their logistics logistic regression because they used variables that were interdependent, which you can't do in, in, in that sort of analysis. So taking all that into account, I think this is a very interesting study. You know, like there are theoretical reasons why adrenaline might be worse, but there are also theoretical reasons why it might be better. So, you know, you can go either way. But all you can say is that it, it really creates a hypothesis that should generate a prospective randomised controlled trial. Um, interestingly, their snapshot sort of take-home message was, whilst we're waiting for that fantastic trial, we should use noradrenaline because at the moment the balance of evidence is in favour of noradrenaline. I sort of have a problem with that in the sense that we're more or less saying, well, Given in the absence of any good evidence, just use it anyway. I don't know. I don't think we're in that space. But I'm interested in your thoughts, Dave. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, well done, Bertha, on getting through the summary with using the terms epinephrine and norepinephrine. I think you only <laughs> tried to say NORAD once. It was very uh, tempting. <laughs> <laughs> 
because we're talking about that epinephric gland. Yeah, so, I mean, I agree. It's an interesting paper, definitely hypothesis generating, but it's their conclusion that I really just can't get on board with. It's far too strong a conclusion to say that this would be in any way practice changing. It absolutely signals us that we need that, you know, big, well done prospective randomized study. But for them to conclude that, and they've literally said, until such data become available, intensivists may want to choose norepinephrine rather than epinephrine. And that they, they can't say that based on this study at all. This is like, this is the quintessential association does not equal causation study right here. I'm very glad that you covered the the statistical issues, Peter, because I'm definitely not clever enough for that. But when you look at it, even just from a pragmatic clinical perspective, the differences between those groups, there's no way you can know that that's because of the drug and not the drug being given because of the differences. You know, the, the sicker group, and I know from my own clinical practice, and I'm sure people people listening would say the same, that a sicker post-cardiac arrest patient is more likely to get adrenaline. They actually, in their, their discussion, they do kind of discuss the different etiologies for post-resuscitation shock, which I think was quite um, an interesting way to, to discuss it. And obviously you've got the myocardial stunning, you know, hearts in trouble kind of picture. And then you've got that post-ROSC SIRS response. And if you look at that, those are two very different pathologies. And it might just be that patients with one do worse and patients with the other do better. But yes, if you've got that SIRS response, you're more likely to be getting noradrenaline. Those patients might just do better anyway, because their heart isn't struggling the same. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the myocardial stunning cardiogenic shock patients who are more likely to get adrenaline, they're probably doing worse from their cardiac arrest anyway. And that might be because of the cause of the cardiac arrest, the duration of the cardiac arrest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's just, you can do all the statistical voodoo you want, but I don't think you're going to be able to pick all of those questions apart on a retrospective paper. Like I say, it's, it's you know, it's, it's really good that they're asking the question, but I just think that their conclusion should be who's going to do this proper study for us. Yeah, I think during the journal club, um, the I think it was Def or Peter who mentioned that essentially which one to use as a clinical judgment. So in general, people with a cardiac course for the cardiac arrest, you use adrenaline. And with a non-cardiac course, like in sepsis, you might choose to use noradrenaline. And you might have this paper at the back of your mind, but you certainly won't use this paper as a practice-changing um, study. Any other comments before we move on? No, no, I think uh, that's covered it. Well, I mean, you know, these are important studies because they set up the background for the RCTs, but we do need the RCTs. And I'm very happy for the RCT to change my practice, but it's just this paper itself isn't going to change my practice. I I, I still don't think adrenaline's great, but, you know. (laughs) Awesome. So let's move on to the second paper. Paper two. Our second paper is titled Trust, Power and Learning in Workplace-Based Assessment, the Trainee Perspective, that was um, published in the Journal of Medical Education again March this year. It's a very different paper from the studies that we usually appraise in Journal Club in that this is a qualitative research paper. And the clinical question asked was, how do trust and power dynamics between trainee and supervisor influence WBAs? In this study, semi-structured interviews were performed on 17 anaesthetic trainees from Australia and New Zealand. Um, The interviewers were two people. The first author, um, who was a consultant anaesthetist, um, also a supervisor of training and supervisor of WBAs, as well as a non 
clinician clinical research assistant. So it used a qualitative research method called the constructivist grounded theory, which is a method that uses an inductive approach to generate a new theory from data gathered through participant interviews or focus groups. And the aim of this constructivist grounded theory is to understand and explore a social process where no adequate or prior theory exists in this paper being what is a power dynamic, trust and power dynamics between trainee and supervisors in the context of WBAs. So as a result of the interviews, the authors theorized that WBA supervisor trainee power dynamic is underpinned by an interaction of supervisor power over and trainee power over two. Supervisor power over is a result of an expected natural order of a hierarchical environment in the hospital. So there is a reciprocal dominance and subservience in the supervisor trainee relationship due to the power gradient. An example of this given in the paper is that trainee is calling the supervisors bosses. So they found that how supervisors use their power and how trainees respond to this can produce a different outcome for trainees. They also found that supervisor power over can provide trainees with multiple benefits, including providing norms for training and supervisor as to how to behave and relate to each other, clarify responsibility for patient care, avoided interpersonal conflict, and facilitated a cordial and efficient working relationship between the supervisor and trainee, and also facilitated trainees to access to specialist expertise and support in their learning. They also found that supervisors can influence trainees' reputation, the progression in training, and their access to future employment, whether it's for better or for worse. So on the other hand, there is also trainee power too that reflects the trainees' agency and how they can choose to exercise their trust on supervisors. They found that trainees are more likely to initiate WBAs when they perceive that the encounter could be to their benefit and that supervisor demonstrated benevolent use of the power, which, for example, is the supervisor had shown commitment to the trainee's learning in the past. They also found that trainees are reluctant to expose their own practice to supervisor scrutiny when they felt that supervisors demanded close control over patient care. So trainees minimize the vulnerability in these situations by withdrawing their trust, complying closely to the supervisor's wishes, matching their practices of supervisors, which the paper termed gaming or staging the performances. Trainees also choose when to initiate formal assessment. For example, they avoid formal assessments with supervisors who they know to be unhelpfully critical. So the authors concluded that trainees' trust in their supervisors was expressed in their use of their power too, depending on how their perceived supervisors use their power over in WBAs. So when trainees choose to trust in responsive benevolent use of supervisor power, they are more likely to practice authentically and expose their weaknesses for the purpose of their own learning. But when trainees choose to trust less, for example, with more controlling supervisors, they forego their learning opportunities and are more likely to game or stage a performance to match their practice to how they think they're expected to perform. And with unsupportive and overly critical supervisors, trainees choose to avoid doing WBAs altogether. So then the author suggested a few ways that we might be able to refine assessment systems to rebalance this power dynamic between trainees and supervisors with the aim to enhance trainee trust and mitigate trainee vulnerability, including providing transparency in what performance information is considered in decision-making and prospectively designating WBAs as either evidence for decision-making or for learning. Um, so we separate the assessment of learning and assessment for learning. Um, and also granting trainees some control over the selection of performance information presented to inform progress decisions. So, David, as an emergency physician and consultant in the ED, you do supervise trainees quite a lot in the WBAs. What do you think about this paper? I think, uh, first of all, that's a, that's a great summary of the paper. I think there's a couple of issues with the paper just from a, um, applicability to us in the emergency medicine world, but there's also some good points to this paper. I think from, from a good point side of things, it's, it's really nice to see someone actually doing some research in this because WBAs are still relatively 
new when it comes to to training in general. And I know that the Australian college uh, applied them a bit later than, say, the UK college that I initially came through. And even in the UK college, we're still, you know, working on the best way to use WBAs. So it's great that someone's doing some um, some research on how we can best apply them. And I, but I still just don't think we're quite there yet. From an issue side of thing, this is obviously, this is an anesthetic training paper. And anesthetics training is vastly different to emergency medicine training in terms of the actual work that they're doing and their supervision level. Because anybody that's that's gone off and done their anesthetics rotations, you know that it's, it's largely one-to-one. Um, particularly in the early stages of anesthetic training, and you've got really close supervision from from consultant uh, supervisors. Whereas in the emergency department, the reason people like emergency medicine is that they are much more independent from a much earlier stage. So the type of WBAs, the type of observation that we're, we're doing is going to be different than the trainees that were being interviewed here. And the other issue being that this paper, the first author, is a consultant anaesthetist and supervisor in the department of the the registrars that are being interviewed. Now, you know, you have to do with what you've got. That's, you know, you still, it's good that they're doing the research, but I suppose a more ideal way to do it, I accept that it would have been more challenging, would have been to get someone who's completely nothing to do with those trainees, maybe to interview in another hospital or some somewhere where there's no direct fallback on the, the trainees for the answers in there their um, responses. But back to the the benefits of the paper, like I say, I don't think we've quite got the best way to do a WBA yet. I think it's really interesting that they say about how they can gamify the the WBA process and, you know, they're more likely to use their own personal practice and be put out for criticism if they're with a consultant that they feel comfortable with. And I think that's something we should look at and something we should really consider because I think the only value, if we're going to use WBAs properly and not as a hoop to jump through in order to complete training, it should be to open yourself up for constructive critique and whether that's by randomly allocating them at the start of a term rather than people you know, being able to pick and choose who they get WBAs from and just changing the culture of them and making it, you know, so that it's good if you're getting some constructive feedback, if you're getting some criticism, because those are the ones you're learning from instead of let's just get it ticked off to get through. And I'm not saying that always happens, but, you know, we've all done WBAs. We know we know what we're talking about. What do you think, Peter? You'll have you'll have come up through the time before WBAs, I think. I'm, just I'm slightly. Big... Just just slightly. Oh, we had real WBAs. Man. <laughs> no, I think my problem with WBAs is that they are very much a tick box. Uh, the way they are practiced in Australia at the moment, in general. I'm not, I mean, I know there's some good. WBAs that happen. Part of the reason for that is time. You know, everyone's busy and you say, just can I just do these quick WBAs, get them ticked off, whatever. The problem for a supervisor is if you give a bad WBA, it's all sorts of bother. So it's a high stakes for both the trainee and the supervisor. If you if you say this guy or, you know, trainee isn't um, performing well, Basically, it puts them, you know, especially if that's late in their training, that, that could prevent them from sitting the exam. So there's they're not going to be honest. And so I think the discussion we had in the room was that maybe we should focus on them earlier in training so that they're not high stakes in terms of an individual. You know, like at the end of the day, if someone's done a, a job that's substandard, it's good to have a, 
you know, honest, transparent discussion about that and say how you can fix it. If they've done a good job, that's great. But it's more, you know, finding the gaps and where someone needs to improve. Uh, and it's actually really hard in, in the sort of modern emergency department to do that well. And, and I suspect maybe we should do it in the first two years of advanced training. Like the bit at the end is, you know, the only way you can object, I think the only way you can objectively measure someone at the end of training is through some sort of summative assessment and WBAs are not the way to do it. But that's just a personal opinion. I think that's actually a really good suggestion, Peter, like to do it in the first two years of advanced training so it's less at stake and you might be more tempted to perform more authentically in these WBAs. And I was also like from a training perspective, I also think that you know, in order for me to learn from my consultants, I can always just ask the consultant to give me a non-formal feedback after a shift or a recess without having to do a WBA. And in that way, I won't be afraid to be authentic, but I'll still get feedback to learn from it. Do you have any other comments, David? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. I suppose the only problem is that that is and this whole portfolio and WBA process is a way of trying to make everyone do what you've just suggested. The thing is, the insightful trainees, the good trainees are going to do that. And the closer they get to the end of their training, they're going to be more insightful and say, I need feedback because I'm going to be the boss, the consultant in no time. And that's great. But then they don't need a WBA because they're going to go and do that anyway. It's Mm -hmm. how do you catch the other people that, that may not have that insight towards the end of their training to make sure that they're ticking the last boxes. I don't think WBAs are the answer, but they're the ones that, that this is for, really. Yeah. What, what do you think is the answer, Peter? I don't think there is an answer. And, and I think, you know, the beauty of our assessments at the moment is they are multi, um, multi-dimensional and, and that's important. I don't think you can just have a multiple choice or just have an OSCE or whatever. And the WBAs are just one part of it. But the, I guess it does raise the question of whether it's the process of the WAE that's important or the outcome in inverted commas in terms of the colleges. What the college wants is for people to do WBOs, hmm. but they, whether or not that's part of your assessment or a hurdle is another question. My view is that the supervisor of training at that institution should say whether you're, I think they should say whether you're ready to sit the exam or not independent Mm -hmm. of WBAs Mm -hmm. because the college can't remotely determine that. The difficulty is that the supervisor uh, of training has a personal relationship and it's very difficult (laughs) to say no to someone who you've just had coffee with or, you know, go out to a party with. So it's it's real. I I don't know. There's no right answer, but I think WBAs are a learning opportunity rather than an assessment opportunity. Great. Thanks, Peter. Um, So we'll move on to the third paper then. Paper three. The third paper is titled Success and Time to Oxygen Delivery for Scalpel Finger Cannula and Scalpel Finger Bougie Front of Neck Access, a randomized crossover study with a simulated can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario in a mannequin model with impalpable neck anatomy. The clinical question for this paper was in... Can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenarios. Is the scalpel finger cannula technique better than the scalpel finger booty technique in providing timely oxygenation? It's a randomized prospective observational study conducted in a hospital in Singapore. 
65 anesthetic consultants or senior registrars were invited to participate in the study and they attended a scheduled basic front of neck access training followed by advanced training in scalpel finger cannula and scalpel finger bougie cricothyrotomy. And then on the same day, they performed both cricothyrotomy techniques and the simulated conditions. The order in which they performed either of the cricothyrotomy techniques were randomized. The target population was that interventions were actually performed on mannequins in simulated scenarios. So mannequins stimulated an obese patient with non-palpable anatomy. The trachea was actually eight centimeters deep with lots of fake blood around involved to simulate bleeding. The intervention was using the scalpel finger cannula technique for front of neck access, followed by performing a melco cricothyrotomy. Um, and a melco cricothyrotomy is actually a, sort of like a Seldinger technique where you put a guide wire in through first and then you feed the, cricoth- um, the um, cricothyroid tube over the guide wire. And the comparison group was using the scalpel finger bougie technique for front of neck access. Primary outcome they looked at was time in seconds from declaring can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenarios to oxygen delivery. The other primary outcome was also first attempt success. They defined each attempt as the removal and reinsertion of the cannula or bougie, um, and they found a successful attempt as oxygen delivery within 180 seconds of can't intubate, can't oxygenate declaration, and within three or fewer attempts. And with the scalpel finger cannula group, the time for insertion of a Melka cricothyrotomy tube was recorded from the participant picking up the guide wire to successful oxygen delivery. Um, and it's deemed successful if the combined time for successful cannulation and Melka cricothyrotomy was within 300 seconds and within three or fewer attempts. And they looked at a few other secondary outcomes as well, um, including adverse events from um, using both these techniques and how the participants were satisfied with the simulation model and the confidence in either of the techniques. So what were the findings of this study? The scalpel finger cannula technique was associated with a shorter time to oxygen delivery and on average is about 62.1 seconds shorter than the scalpel finger bougie technique. There was also a higher first attempt success reported with the scalpel finger cannula technique and the scalpel finger bougie technique. And participants had higher odds at achieving first attempt success with scalpel finger cannula. Successful delivery of oxygen after the can't intubate, can't oxygenate declaration within three attempts and 180 seconds was also higher in the scalpel finger cannula technique. And analyzing successful cases only, scalpel finger cannula achieved a shorter time to oxygen delivery. It actually had a longer time to cuff tube insertion um, with a mean time difference of about 56 seconds. However, after simulation training, most participants were found to prefer the scalpel finger cannula technique in patients with impalpable neck anatomy. So the authors concluded that in mannequin simulation of impalpable neck anatomy and bleeding, the scalpel finger cannula approach demonstrated superior performance in oxygen delivery and was also the preferred technique of the majority of study participants. Um, And the study findings support the use of a cannula-based front-of-neck access technique for achieving oxygenation in a can't-intubate, can't-oxygenate scenario but with the prerequisite that appropriate training and equipment are available. So, Peter, what do you think about this study? It's quite an interesting study, um, just using mannequins. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly using a model is not the same as real life, so that's the first point. The participants were anaesthetists, weren't they? And so they're more familiar with certain techniques than, say, emergency positions. And so, again, we need, you know, in terms of translating it to the emergency situation, Mm. you need to take account of 
uh, you know, who you're talking about. So that's the second thing. I guess the question is, you know, it, it, it it's it's a good attempt. I, I don't want to be too critical about that because we're not we're not going to get a hundred people like this lined up and do a randomised <laughs> controlled trial. You know, like it's it's not something you do every day. So if we're going to study different approaches, then we're probably going to have to do it in a simulated environment. But it was interesting. I think the discussion we had at the Journal Club after having trialled our various techniques on cadavers, which again are a different model, people felt that the conclusions may have been the reverse of their own personal uh, experience, limited as it was to the people in the room. So I guess what I'm saying is it's sort of interesting and makes me think, but I wasn't totally convinced, A, by the participants or B, by the model in terms of the conclusion. What are your thoughts, David? Mm, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think kudos to them for the, the model. I think that's, you know, it's great to to come up with a way of, of making a bleeding model because bleeding and and putting the emphasis on this being a blind technique is important and that's something that you know we can't do in the cadaver workshops uh that we provide um but that's probably where my acceptance of this paper stops like peter says these are not emergency clinicians and this is not an emergency airway situation they were senior anesthetists that were already favoring the melker and i remember from my anesthetics training being taught to use the melker and that making me fear the can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario because it was fiddly. And if you hadn't opened the packet recently, it was going to be fiddly to do. Whereas when it was shortly after my, I was doing my anesthetics, I started my anesthetics that scalpel finger bougie was kind of coming back to popularity. That just made so much more sense to me. And I stopped fearing the can't intubate, can't oxygenate. Don't get me wrong. I'd still rather not have one, but... <laughs> At least it simplified the process in my head where I knew that I could, you know, make a stab at it, pun intended. Uh, whereas the Melker, I, I still to this day hate trying to open a, a Melker and just use the, the the kit. And that also raises issues then about, you know, in this scenario when they're saying time from declaration of the can't intubate, can't oxygenate, and then the Melker was right there at hand. Even if you had it out, it's another expensive piece of kit that you have to then open. And when you open it, you have to, you know, you're not going to have it routinely open for every airway. Whereas for every single emergency airway we do on the bottom of the trolley is a little bag that has the scalpel in it. And that's the only extra piece of equipment that you need to activate that, that pathway. And so I think in real world setting, the cognitive block isn't there for doing the, the bougie technique. And also they're saying they're arguing that this is going to be a, a very large patient. You know, they've given it a really deep neck, eight centimeters or something before the uh, cricothyroid membrane. And if that's the size of your patient's neck, what size is your patient's chest and the rest of them? And just getting a little bit of a, a whiff of oxygen down a cannula might not be sufficient. You know, these are going to be hard patients to ventilate. So I'm actually more interested in your time to definitive airway where you can get some pressure going and, and things like that. And so again, that's where the, the scalpel finger uh, bougie technique had, had benefit. So yeah, it just, to me, this just isn't applicable to our patient setting and not to a real world emergency setting where our patients are starting from baseline sicker, which is why we are doing the airway. So I just wouldn't, I wouldn't apply this. I wouldn't be sending for lots of milkers for the emergency department based on this study. Yeah, and I think in the journal club, basically the conclusion was that 
you know, we'll probably still stick with the scalpel finger buji technique in ED, but it's good to learn another technique just as a backup if the one technique doesn't work. Um, any other comments before we move on, Peter? No, I think that's exactly right. I, the other thing I've noticed when, you know, the the proverbial uh, hits the fan, finding an extra bit of kit is always difficult. And so if it's if all your stuff is always there no matter what, that is by far the, like, you know, getting the nurse to run to find the milker or whatever, I and mean, that's not going to happen. All right, great. Let's move on to the last paper. Paper four. So the last paper is titled Effect of Sotrovimab on Hospitalization or Death Among High-Risk Patients with Mild to Moderate COVID-19, a Randomized Trial. It was published in JAMA um, this year. The clinical question was, amongst patients at risk of disease progression, does early treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 with sotrovimab prevent progression to severe disease? It's a part of a bigger trial called the COMET-ICE trial that evaluates the efficacy and tolerability of COVID-19 monoclonal antibody efficacy. It's a phase three double-blind multicenter RCT that was conducted in 57 different sites in a few countries from the period of 2020-2021. The target population were non-hospitalized patients with symptomatic mild to moderate COVID-19 and at least one risk factors for progression. The risk factors were aged more than or equal to 55 years old, diabetes required medication, obesity with a BMI of more than 30, CKD with an EGFR of less than 60, CCF and with an NYHA class more than or equal to 2, COPD and moderate to severe asthma. And they excluded patients who were already hospitalized or patients who already show signs and symptoms of severe COVID-19 symptoms, for example, shortness of breath at rest, stats less than 94% or required supplemental oxygen. The intervention group had a single intravenous infusion with 500 milligrams of sotrovimab over one hour on day one, and the comparison group received a similar volume of placebo on day one over one hour. The primary outcome they looked at was actually a composite of all-cost hospitalization lasting 24 hours for acute illness management or death. And so the idea was look at the proportion of patients with COVID-19 progression through day 29. And they also looked at a few other secondary outcomes, including whether they progressed to become severe or critically ill COVID-19 patients requiring mechanical ventilation or supplemental oxygen. So what did they find in the study? Enrollment was actually stopped early for this study because of how efficacious sotrovimab was. So in the end, they only enrolled 1,057 patients who fitted the study criteria. They found that all-course hospitalization lasting longer than 24 hours or death was significantly reduced with sotrovimab, um, being 1% sotrovimab group versus placebo group 6%. And four of the five secondary outcomes were statistically significant in favor of sotrovimab, including reduced ED visits, reduce hospitalization or death, progression to severe or critical respiratory COVID-19. And importantly, no patients treated with sotrovimab actually required any oxygen, high nasal prongs or mechanical ventilation through to day 29. And adverse events were infrequent and similar between the treatment groups. So the authors concluded that among non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 and at risk of disease progression, a single intravenous dose of sotrovimab compared with placebo significantly reduced risk of a composite endpoint of all-cause hospitalization or death through day 29. So Peter, it's a bit of a historical study now, isn't it? Because we don't really use sotrovimab much anymore in clinical practice. What do you think about this study and the applicability to ED? 
Yeah, I think a number of issues. Uh, as mm. you say, it is an historical study. I think it was August 2020 to March 2021. So, you know, this, the results are as they are. I mean, there was there was definitely a difference. And there are some issues around the outcome measure, like admission to hospital, like why do you admit someone to hospital? Was there a mm. standardised admission process, that sort of thing? But even the deaths were significantly different, saying 13 versus 39. So... Whichever measure you looked at, there did appear to be a positive effect. So that's all good. But since that time, uh, which was back in the dark ages, we have um, <laughs> had a mass immunisation program. We've had new variants of COVID and, you know, we've got better risk stratification of patients. These patients were, I think, had one risk factor. So, you know, they, they yep. were at slightly higher risk. But, you know, I think... We've got a little bit more sophisticated again about how we we restratify. So I guess uh, on the face of it, if we had someone with, say, Delta who came in and, and who had a number of risk factors, you'd be crazy not to give them citrovimab. Mm. But mostly now it's not Delta, it's some other variant. Most of the patients are immunised, like in, in Australia it's about 95% or something. And I guess the other thing that's happened is citrovimab availability is another issue and also it has to be given IV so whether you use one of the oral agents or something else I guess is a question so I'm not sure this study sort of helps me you know all you can do is put it into that algorithm that we use from the evidence-based task force and you know you sort of get an idea about where this might fit but certainly, you know, it, it's reassuring that it works for this group of patients. And I think we can extrapolate that if we get an unvaccinated patient at high risk, then you, you certainly should be thinking about citrovimab. Mm. And how about you, David? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think Peter's covered most of it there, but it's, it's just, it does feel like it's impossible. It's impossible to keep up with COVID at the best of times, but, and um, you know, that's why I feel for anyone that's publishing uh, randomized controlled trials on it, because by the time you get a decent quality study done and have it peer reviewed, it's out of date compared to all of the other conditions that we talk about in emergency medicine, you know, it's impossible. But yeah, I think it's, while we don't know what whether it's it's useful for Omicron patients, I think as Peter says, there's there's probably a subset of patients that I would strongly consider it for. The the unvaccinated, the ones with multiple risk factors, definitely take it into consideration. I suppose the only other thing is cost. Do you know how much it costs in Australia? I had a quick Google there and it looked like in the US it's about two thousand dollars, but obviously their prices tend to be inflated somewhat, but it's still not a cheap drug to give and you have to you know if you're a gp considering it you have to arrange for the the patient to have a short stay to get the intravenous infusion and then they have to be observed for two hours afterwards and so that time goes into the cost as well so it's just how much benefit there is for that cost but there's probably a subset of patients we would use it for yeah and nowadays um the most current guidelines is they basically recommend other antivirals like moropirinir or paxlovid before you even consider sotrovimab because of access issues awesome thank you we'll see you in the next journal club thanks brother